Hello and welcome to Have You Seen It? I'm Emily. And I'm Ned. And each week we'll take you on a three-part cinematic adventure. We will be reviewing something currently in cinemas. A past or present wildcard. And something hot on a streaming service. So let us be your cinematic spirit guides. So you can stop scrolling. And start watching. So Emily, what did you see this week in the cinema? So this week in the cinema, Ned, I saw a film called Blue Jean from writer-director Georgia Oakley. And this is a film set in the north of England in 1988 during the passing of Thatcher's Section 28 bill. And the bill was feeding off the AIDS panic and it instructed British state schools not to promote the teaching of the acceptability of homosexuality as a pretend family relationship. And this is the context that our protagonist, Jean, uh, played by Rosie McEwen, finds herself in. So she's divorced, she's a closeted PE teacher, and she's desperately trying to keep her real self under the radar. However, when a girl arrives at her school who threatens to expose her sexuality, Jean is thrown into this crisis that kind of shakes her to her very core. Last week we spoke about British films and how a lot of them are period pieces, Downton-inspired. And with this, I would say, actually, I forgot one of the other big categories of British films are depressing stories set in the 80s. I get it. It was a tough time. Thatcher was about. But I just hope when we, in 20 years' time, when we're making films, Mm -hmm. we're not like, oh, let's make films about that kind of time that was interesting for us anyway the side point did you like it yes um I get your point there and did I like it yes I did I really liked it so I think the thing about it is I probably had some of your concern and reserve going into it but what's so nice about this film is that it's really naturalistic quietly powerful and it sort of really creeps up on you with the narrative and it's very subtle it's not overdone it's not overbearing and I think it will educate a lot of people and that that's something I definitely took away from it was that I felt like I'd learned something and gone on this sort of emotional roller coaster with these characters tell me about the director what's her what's her background yeah so this is actually um so she's a writer director her name's Georgia Oakley and this is her first feature debut feature and she's actually nominated for a BAFTA in the category of debut feature so I think as a British female filmmaker she's really making a mark yeah I one of the reasons I actually chose this film Ned was because she is an alumni of the same school as me and was actually there at the same time so she's really how old is she she's three years older than us really young if she's only three years older than us she's really (laughs) she's really wow I didn't even know you're allowed to make films or accomplish anything (laughs) at that age exactly and I think as a debut feature it's you know if this is the the beginning then I I can't wait to see what she does next yeah I mean that's that is really cool and actually that's interesting because that means she would have been born the year that this film is set or around the year this film is set Mm -hmm. so were there echoes to now is it is it a film which you leave and you think you know what that was pretty similar to like some of the narrative and some of the the environment we're living in in the UK. Mm. I think what's interesting is that especially from the perspective of you know the queer community that this showed how far we've come but also how far we have to go Mm. in terms of 
the way queer people live and are treated and all that kind of thing. So obviously since this bill, there's been a lot changed, but it feels like there is a lot more work to do. And I thought one of the like nuances here that was really interesting is that this protagonist, Jean, she is sort of berated by everyone in her life for not being her authentic self. So by her girlfriend says that she's not out enough. Her family sort of pretend to understand what she's going through, but also kind of tread on eggshells around her. They never quite know how to treat her since she's come out to them. So it just feels really sad and kind of infuriating to see this woman kind of crushed by the political context in which she's living, that she can never truly be herself. So it's like reflected in her her day-to-day life. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen a film which shows the inner life of a queer character like this before? Or a TV programme? I guess It's a Sin. I'm not sure. I was going to say, I was going to say, it's kind of similar era of It's a Sin. It's a Sin had enormous apocalyptic feel to it Mm. um i don't i i do think some of russell t davis kind of science fiction skills were put to use in a very very real story there um Mm -hmm. i think the horror of what was going on um yeah you know it was a pandemic and he wanted to show it was a pandemic um and with all of the other stuff going on, it was, I think, in some ways almost dystopian, yet very real, which is why I think it was so effective. Is this similarly wide lens or is it very narrow into the life? Yeah, so that's, I think it's interesting because it, it is, it's not so broad and not so earth shatteringly, you know, apocalyptic in its message around the gay community here because it focuses very much on like women and lesbian relationships and that kind of community that Jean is in. So in that way, it's not quite so... It's interesting because usually around this time, you've you've got the AIDS pandemic, which obviously did affect like the lesbian community, but not quite so much. So this is very much just focusing in on this one woman's experience as a PE teacher, what that means being around young women and then living this sort of, not secret, but quieter life as a gay woman in the north of England at this time. Is it unspeakably bleak? Funnily enough, it's not unspeakably bleak, even though it's a bleak setting. It's got the sort of muted colour palettes and it does intercut with footage of the 80s and Mm. like protests and things like that. It does show a bit of hope and it does show a bit of light and love in these small pockets, which I think is what's missing from those kind of bleak films that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, Ken Loach. I mean, I, I, just find, I just find it too depressing. I can't do it. And who, so who are the stars? Is he acting good? It didn't seem to be anyone I'd seen in anything before or heard of. No, so Rosie McEwen, who's, who plays Jean, she's getting quite a lot of attention, I'll say, for this role and for her performance. I think before she's been in a few like TV shows and kind of smaller scale things, but this is kind of one of her bigger features. And because this has already been performing really well on the festival circuit it was at you know venice and the bfi london film festival and all that kind of thing so it's kind of a a slow burn to get noticed but i think once it's out in the cinema it's gonna do a lot of things for the cast and mm. the production team is there anyone you would say don't bother it's not your thing to about this film i actually think as someone who walked out of this film and felt like i had 
learned a bit about a piece of British history that I wasn't aware of. Mm. I think everyone should go and see it if you want to learn something about that time period and what experience was like for the you know queer community is it a slog no it's not it's also it's about one hour 30 so it's not a long film it's short it's snappy great another 90 minute another 90 minute and you learn something and that's that's really nice um right well how much would you pay for a ticket then uh, so I went to a press screening of this nad so I didn't pay for my ticket yeah Ooh. oh god <laughs> so you stole a ticket yeah. If you wanted to make a contribution to, to this filmmaker, he's probably spent years making this, only for you to swan in. Yeah, I think five years she's been working on it. It is crazy how long it takes to make a film. Yeah. It's, why, it's why I've not done one. <laughs> one of the reasons. I would probably pay to go and watch this at an everyman, Ned, if that tells oh, wow. you what you need to know. Okay, so up to £20 for that. Oh, yeah. with, with a nice big glass of wine to settle in and enjoy the kind of bleak... With a, <laughs> with a cocktail, maybe like an old-fashioned or something. Oh, yeah. Um, all right, brilliant. So, section two. This is our past, present, future wildcard, otherwise known as Ned's pretentious pick. Ned, what treat do you have in store for us this week? After last week's incredibly bleak tale of trauma in rural Bengal. I have got a film by the name of My Neighbour Totoro, and sorry for butchering the pronunciation. Uh, it is Studio Ghibli or Ghibli, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Second film, but it's a film that launched this animation house into kind of international mainstream success. And it tells a very, very simple story of a family moving to the countryside, moving to rural Japan, and the children befriending the spirits in the woods. Um, there is essentially no plot. In many ways, it is a kind of very, very cheery mirror to last week's deeply bleak story of um, a family life in rural Bengal. And why did you pick it, Ned? Why did you decide this week my neighbour, Totoro, or Totoro, is the one. So Japanese animation is huge in the West, obviously. You have potentially heard of, or certainly would recognise the style of Studio Ghibli. Um, and they've made films like Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke. In fact, my first ever film in the cinema, subtitled film I saw in the cinema, was Spirited Away. And I just fell in love with it. It is such a great film. So I wanted to see where this story, where this international success of Studio Ghibli kind of started. And I also didn't want another kind of two and a half hour bleak epic. I wanted a 90 minutes children's film, which is what it was. Now, Emily, did you enjoy it? I loved it. Oh, thank God. So <laughs> I really didn't know you were going to go there. <laughs> I had had a pretty rough week, you know, mentally. And when I turned on that film, it was just like having a massive hug. It was like Totoro or whatever himself was just like hugging me. They're so comforting and like so beautiful and the sound and the characters. It's just so joyful. And my, I never watched this, my neighbor Totoro before. My first encounter with Studio Ghibli was also Spirited Away. Um, so I knew that I would like it. But for whatever reason, this had never been on my list but it's just so feel good and I think it is a children's film but it is also for anyone or 
and everyone who needs a bit of a pick-me-up. I completely agree. I, I did listen to it on headphones and there's a lot of children kind of joyfully shouting, which is a little bit hungover and I was like, I just actually need to, <laughs> need to turn this down a little bit a couple of times. It's a lot. <laughs> but you're right that the animation is so extraordinary. Like the, the thing about the hug, they just nail how something should look yeah. to make it look comfortable and weird. And it just reminded me of all those like happy days in the countryside. It's so beautifully painted. Mm, exactly. There is something of that that kind of brings you back to childhood. It is, it is a real hipster cult fave. It is one of those things. You don't get memes of it, but it's just one of those things which comes up again and again. And I think that if you are kind of a filmy hipster, it's something that you really you're, you're expected to love mm. because it's like, yeah, I'm re- yeah, I'm clever if I like Battle of Algiers, but I'm really clever if I understand all the value in this plotless yeah. animated children's film. There's a lot of like symbolism and meaning in the film. I have read that a lot of the spirits and the animism and stuff is actually didn't restart but it it helped bring the kind of newfound love of the countryside uh, particularly in the areas around Tokyo it apparently it kind of re-kicked this kind of ideal of Japanese rural life uh, which you know is something that in Britain is is quite a big part of our culture what about you did you did you take any kind of great meaning and kind of spiritual um, satisfaction from it I did I think the first thing was I was like oh I should probably move to the country that looks nice (laughs) Um, that was the first thing. But I think I did dig into it a bit and I was reading about Japanese Shinto and the kind of belief and like reverence in the natural world and this sort of deep respect for nature. And that's what often these characters are kind of cultivating. It is also about like environmentalism, isn't Mm. it? Because it's about the spirits of the woods and they have this real respect for the natural world which i think we can all learn a lot of lot from especially now uh, especially now we've so i thought that it. was really yeah. nice yeah exactly that there were some other um little nuggets i dug up on my research of this which i will share with you so firstly the mother narrative being very ill that was something that was potentially inspired by Miyazaki's mother, who was bedridden with spinal TB for much of his childhood. Oh, really? So they think that was a bit of a connection. And also links to Alice in Wonderland. So you obviously have May following the white spirit at the beginning, a bit like the white rabbit. And then the cat bus obviously looks like a Cheshire cat and has that sort of Alice in Wonderland well, feel Well, Totoro to as well. So Totoro, the main uh, kind of this big bear-like spirit that, that kind of... It not actually introduced until about 40 minutes into this 85-minute film. Um, yeah. You know, it's really... The supernatural part are kind of... It's, it's not... It's only kind of hinted at um, for most of it. You know, you, one thinks of Japanese culture as being very... Um, well, as an island as it is, whereas in reality, it's a great culture for drawing in other influences and mm. making stuff its own. Would you watch another film by Studio Ghibli after this? Yes, absolutely. The, I've, the only other one I've seen is Spirited Away. And so I'm 
putting, you know, Princess Mononoke, Howl's Moving Castle, all on the list. I can't get enough at this point, so I'm ready for more. It's so amazing how they make this because it's all hand drawn and hand painted and then obviously, you know, made into a cartoon. And there are 24 frames per second. So that means they have to make thousands upon thousands upon thousands of hand-drawn images for this. And you can tell. You can tell mm. that it's, it's had genuine craft uh, go into it, um, which, again, is why <laughs> Predators are such a big fan of it, because they can talk about craft and well, you know, say exactly what I just said. Uh, so, Ned, where would you place this in a kind of, for someone on their film studies journey? I think it would be um, a cheeky joke at the end of week one of lectures from the lecturer at uni. Now we're going to do a, a very important film and make a big thing in song and dance. And then he'd put it on and everyone would go, well, that was just charming, wasn't it? And then he'd ask a really tough essay. So I think end yeah. of week one as a treat. Uh, yeah, yeah, a treat. But also, like, you're going to learn something from this, guys. Yeah, this is how storytelling is yeah. done. So the third and final section is something that is hot on a streaming service. Ned, can you tell me what has been chosen and why? What has been chosen, what you have chosen, is a (laughs) programme called Treason. And where can I watch it? You can watch it on Netflix. Um, And I'm not sure if you can tell from my tone already what I thought about it. Why did you pick it, Emily? So I picked it because... A couple of people who show a name nameless recommended it to me and the Netflix algorithm also kept recommending it to me, which now makes me worry about what they think of me. Um, but I just seen it around. I had a few people in it that I recognised and I thought, yeah, you know, spicy spy drama. That's a bit of me. It's got a good cast. It's got Charlie Cox, who I like from Daredevil. And I've not seen She-Hulk yet, but I like him. He's one of those actors who I just like. Yeah. It's got Una Chaplin, who I feel sorry for after what happened to her in Game of Thrones. It's got um, Kieran Hines. He's, he's a great actor, actually. And it's got Olga Kurielenko, who I think is great. Mm-hmm. She's, just, she's got charisma. So that being said, Ned, set, set it up for me. What did you go in thinking you were about to watch? Okay, if I was to start describing the plot, we'd probably be here for longer than an episode takes because a lot happens in 40 minutes. As far as I'm aware, the broad plot is the head of MI6 is assassinated. Somebody else who works at MI6, not quite clear what position, takes over the running of MI6 immediately. There's no, there's no like, council... And then he starts getting blackmailed. And so the plot, I suppose, is working out why someone wants to shoot him after five, five days. And it might be because his family are fucking annoying. <laughs> yes. Um, so I watched this straight after finishing My Neighbour Totoro. So My Neighbour Totoro, a film without a plot, essentially. Pure charm, pure whimsy. And within... Within two minutes of watching um, Treason, I was like, have I missed the first episode? Because it goes straight into the plot, doesn't bother with characterisation, doesn't bother with setting, doesn't bother with that. It's just like, here we go, 
someone's getting someone's blackmailing someone and they're getting poisoned. I saw there were only five episodes and I thought, great. What did you think? Have you watched the whole thing? Uh, yes. Do I wish I could get that time back? Yes. <laughs> um, I thought when I thought all the same things as you. I was like Charlie Cox. I have been a fan of his since he was in Stardust, and like I just. I love him, I'd watch him do anything. And I love intrigue and I love spies, but this was just complete garbage. Like, firstly, you, like just then, couldn't even tell me what it was about. I've watched it, I still don't know what it's about. Apart from a quite spineless man and his whiny family. Yeah. It's, it doesn't, there's too much of that and not enough of the spying and the intrigue and all of that side of it. So that pissed me off. It's why from the first episode, He's like wakes up in the middle of the night because he's getting blackmailed by somebody. This is like 20 minutes in, he's already getting blackmailed by somebody. He wakes up in the middle of the night and he goes on his computer. He's running the secret service of the UK. And his wife comes through and is like, mm, why aren't you in bed? He slams his laptop screen down and is like, oh, I just couldn't sleep. She's like, you know, you can talk to me. He's the head of the secret service probably can't actually it's probably in his job description not to be able to talk to you yeah and rather than just be like i've actually just got to do some work because i'm literally running the secret service during a general election yeah which is this kind of a, a little detail that they put in um and then the next day she goes and hangs out with her friend who's a spy for the americans <laughs> who who saved her life at some point yeah some some vague point oh i'm really worried about my husband he, he, I think he got this file about Baku yesterday. What the <laughs> fuck are you doing? He's running MI6. You don't just tell a spy from a rival agency. Yeah. And the entire programme is just every two minutes, there is a clangor like that. Does that continue? Yeah, yeah, it continues and uh, it doesn't really end. It's just like everyone's, you know, tr- trust no one, trust everyone. All these sort of improbable mental things start happening. And I, I think it's because there's no character development. There's no one to root for. They're all quite annoying. They're all quite narcissistic. Like, even the kids, they don't listen to the dad. They're all just really needy. Every single character just seems yeah. unbelievably needy. Yeah, and if I wanted to watch a TV programme about a needy, dysfunctional family, I'd watch Shit's Creek or something. Yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't watch this. So, yeah, it, it really irritated. The thing that also annoyed me was that the writer, creator, director... Yeah. Uh, he wrote Bridge of Spies. He has written a masterpiece. How did this happen? I think it was rushed. The filming locations, the, there was something that felt very last minute about the whole thing. Even like the colour palette of the, of the filming, which is something I don't normally notice, just looked a bit cheap. Yeah, yeah. And actually, you're right about the locations because they were budget AF. I... As a Londoner, I'm sure you often watch things and you're like, oh, that's Battersea Park. Mm. Every single scene, I was like, that's the South Bank. That's the South Bank Centre. Great place for the head of MI6 to be having a domestic <laughs> on top of the South Bank Centre. It just felt like they were just using random public spaces. Yeah. Which there was no thought behind it. It was just kind of like, OK, cool, let's get a shooting permit for here. What compelled you to watch all of the episodes? Uh, because I ain't no quitter, Ned. That's, that's, that's it. <laughs> I've got to say, though, I was half an hour in after, you know, playing backgammon on my phone for most of it, watching it. I was like, oh, no, I'm going to have to watch all of this. <laughs> this is the problem. I was like, oh, no, this is, 
this is awful. This is unspeakably bad, but I'm going to have to watch every second of this. Yeah, I mean, that's luckily there is only five episodes. Yeah. And, and we're here to warn people that if thinking about embarking on it, there are potentially other options. Yeah, don't start, um, because as you said at the <laughs> beginning, you want that time back, but I still listen yeah. to it, and because I'm already in. I mean, my next question is, is it worth your time? I think I know the answer. Oh, uh, no, no, unless, no, unless you're going through, like, unless you, no. Unless you're, like, delayed at the airport. Oh, what's, like, SAS Rogue Heroes or something? I suppose you just don't have to think, because the writer and the director and the actors seemingly don't, don't seem to think throughout. How bingeable is it? So this is interesting, because I think after the first episode, I was like... I'm going to, you know, yeah, I'm going to try. And I, that was like a tiny bit bingeable because I was like, oh, maybe it will get better. Yeah. So not bingeable because it was compelling, just because I was like willing it to improve. But each episode, it just gets less and less and you're just a bit more and more. So like a, like a bad Donna in one of those hitters, which isn't warmed enough. Yeah. Where you're just like, well, I've started eating this now. The damage is done. Exactly. I might as well keep going. Yeah. But actually, probably don't. <laughs> was there anything good about it, would you say? Mm, I like Kieran Hines. I like the, the cast. They, uh, indivi- <laughs> it's like when your teacher tells you off, I like you all as individuals, but together you're a nightmare. <laughs> they're, they're all great actors individually, but the fact that that great cast couldn't elevate this tells you everything you need to know. So, I, 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 you know, I enjoy watching them perform, and but just they shouldn't have done this yeah that's really that is really really damning what should you watch instead good question what should you watch instead um you could watch you could watch bridge of spies instead Ned. yeah yeah it's probably less time better i've not seen it myself and it's spielberg isn't it so yeah yeah exactly and also, if you're looking for a female-focused spy film, you could watch Charlotte Grey featuring Kate Blanchett. Yeah, there are lots of good options out there. So they, they have just made, I think it was on ITV, they did do a Spy Among Friends, which is an adaptation of Kim Philby's book. Damien Lewis, Guy Pearce, Anna Maxwell-Martin. And it's suppo- I haven't seen it, but it's supposed to be very good. Okay. And you feel like with, with that source material from Kim, like Kim Philby, yeah. if you're going to do it from anyone, he, he's a good place to start. I think, I think maybe I'll jump over to that rather than seeing how the rest of this, uh, <laughs> the rest of this ridiculous <laughs> load of crap turns out. <laughs> yeah. That is everything for today. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to give us a like follow and subscribe and follow us on Instagram at haveyou.seenit.